Happy New Year and welcome to the Bunker Start Your Week, or should that be Year. I'm Ros Taylor and joining me to kick off 2022 is writer, broadcaster and Chancellor of the University of Kent, Gavin Esler. Hello, Gavin. Hello, good morning and Happy New Year. So just like last year, COVID is the big story. Let's hope it won't be for much longer. Without wanting to indulge in what has become dismissively known as hopium, it looks like we're going to be living with COVID rather than locking down again. We're also even more definitively out of the EU, with more restrictions on the movement of goods that kicked in on 1st of January. Meanwhile, 2022 sees three institutions that are key to British identity looking more vulnerable than ever. The BBC, which is celebrating its centenary this year, the monarchy and the NHS. Gavin, what was on your mind as you heard Big Ben Bong at midnight on New Year's Eve? Well, I thought it was a great metaphor for so many of the things that we're going to be discussing throughout the year. In other words, Big Ben has been ailing for years. Since 2007, there have been problems with it. Eventually, we got round to trying to fix it, and it cost much more than it should have done because we didn't do a kind of programme of repairs when we could have done that. And so this great British institution, Big Ben, is now bonging again. But all those other ones that you mentioned, the BBC, the NHS, uh, and I could mention others, actually, you know, uh, actually the justice system in England and, and so on, they all... These great public service uh, institutions require a bit of tender loving care and they haven't had it and they're having exactly the opposite. And I fear that rather like Big Ben, it will drag on and drag on and eventually we'll suddenly realise that the bell doesn't work anymore and we've got to spend even more money putting them right. Let's talk first about the BBC because you're a former broadcaster. And what's the challenges facing it now? Because it's come under political pressure it looks as if it may be under more political pressure next year, despite celebrating 100 years of all it's been doing, and despite the fact that it's become a very reliable source of information for people during the pandemic. Where do you see the BBC going in the next year? I think there are two big challenges as it uh, celebrates its century. The first is probably the most difficult, actually, which is where does it fit in in a world of Netflix and others? I mean, there is so much choice. We all know that. Uh, do people care? Do teenagers now really care the source of the content they get? They just kind of graze, and I think many of us do. So the BBC's role in that is much more difficult now, especially since the amount of money that Netflix and others can raise is much higher than the BBC can raise from what it, what is a tax. So that, to me, is the ultimate strategic question for the BBC. And for me, the strategic answer is it's got to be really a public service for the people of the United Kingdom and beyond. That's why BBC News in particular is so important and why trust in it is so important. And then the flip side of that is that we have, well, um, Nadine Doris as Culture Secretary has made it quite clear she doesn't think much of the BBC. There is and always has been uh, an element of the BBC being a political football because it dares to suggest that people in government are not perfect. And the cultural changes and the political changes come together on questions about balance. And this is the biggest problem, it seems to me, for BBC News in the next century, if, there, if it has a next century, which is how do you balance people who are simply not telling the truth? At what point do you say, I'm sorry, but the Prime Minister of our country, or as we've seen with Donald Trump, the President of the United States just lies all the time? Now, we all know it, but it's very difficult for a broadcaster like the BBC to continually say that. And that's part of the challenge too. 
Let's think about the NHS as well, because it's coming under pressure. There have been various local uh, trusts this week that have declared a state a critical state. That means they're struggling to get enough staff. Looks as though there won't be a lockdown. If any case, if we had a lockdown now, it would be too late to stem a flow of hospitalizations in the next two weeks or so. But for me, one of the striking things is social care, which a few months ago was supposed to be sorted. And it was sold as something that was all going to be fixed. And now we find ourselves in a situation where social care has not changed at all, is struggling even more for staff, thanks partly to Brexit, and with no prospect of getting the money that it needs, thanks to the continuing pressure that the pandemic is putting the NHS under. Yes, I mean, that that's absolutely right. And part of, again, the key problem is it's not as if, like Big Ben, we're suddenly waking up to find it doesn't work anymore. We've known this for years, and it is going to cost more, and Brexit is, is part of the problem. The other part of the problem is it depends who you mean by we anymore, because the front page of The Times on Monday this week had in England, you know, there's not really much of a problem about COVID, it'll all be fine, just sort of hang on. The front page in Scotland said expect restrictions for the next two months. So the different parts of the UK, even on coronavirus, continue to be pulling in different directions. And when you run a national health service, the question is how best to adapt that for the future. And again, the problem isn't just money. I mean, on, we know on the right wing, there are people on the right wing of politics, there are people who wish to privatise the NHS. On the left, there are people, unfortunately, who, who don't, who seem to still think it's the envy of the world, even though nobody else is copying precisely the system. We are, we, you know, I go to Germany quite a lot. They do not have routinely a winter beds crisis because they've got more beds. So part of it is just about money. But another part of it is to think exactly how we want to run this amazing system that we all benefit from and has kept many of us alive over the last couple of years. And the monarchy and the Queen, of course, who is in increasing age and failing health as well. And of course, the Prince Andrew problem. How do you see that story developing over the next year? (laughs) Well, I I can't wait for the next series of The Queen. (laughs) How on earth are they going to handle this? I mean... Uh, I let, let me let's put it very calmly that Prince Andrew doesn't come out of this very well, no matter what happens now. And look, the Queen has been with us all of my life, all of your life, all of the life of most people listening, and has been quite an extraordinary person, and who has helped bridge the gap between World War Two, the World War Two generation, through the the end of the British Empire, which has been no mean achievement, to the modern Britain of the information age. When the crown finally passes to her successor, to Prince Charles, I think there's going to have to be, again, another institution that is going to need to be rethought. Everything from, should we really be having orders of the British Empire anymore, as uh, some people are discussing, to what is the role for all these kind of minor royals, some of whom are more embarrassing than others. So I think that the monarchy itself will have to be rethought when Prince Charles becomes King Charles. There have been many warnings that Russia is preparing to invade Ukraine, potentially in the next few weeks. Do you take those seriously? I think this is... Potentially, this is the biggest story of the year. I mean, we could be having a, just be clear, a ground war in Europe for the first time since 1945. 
The question is, uh, what what does Putin want? And, uh, you know, there are those like, I remember talking to Senator John McCain years ago uh, in, in Washington. He said, oh, well, he wants his empire back and we're not going to give it to him. Now, Ukraine is obviously the key flashpoint, but Georgia is another one and the Baltic republics are another. I mean, the Russians, under Putin, there was a cyber attack on Estonia uh, about 15 years ago and nearly brought the economy to its knees. Georgia, I talked to recently uh, a number of people in Georgia who were constantly worried about this aggression from Russia. And Putin seems to be looking for a pretext. And the pretext is that uh, Ukraine is just about to join NATO, which it isn't. So uh, whether this is a Putin bluff or not, I don't know, because Putin in classic KGB terms doesn't care about lying because the more lies he tells, the more confusing the picture is and more people don't really know what to believe. But clearly Ukraine is taking this very seriously. Where I have some hope is that the new administration in Germany, for example, might say to Putin, well, you can forget Nord Stream 2 and we will be paying more for our gas and we'll be looking for alternative sources of energy. And secondly, because Russia is an underdeveloped country, it could be very rich if the kleptocrats in the Kremlin didn't steal so much of its money. So there is great dissent in Russia. And the one little beacon of hope I have here is that the more Putin cracks down domestically and he, he tries to stir up trouble abroad, that's because he's less secure now than he was a few years ago, because things in Russia are not going well. The economy for such a rich, potentially, country is a bit of a basket case. And Trump, of course, is still there in the US. And whenever I talk to people from the US, I say, you know, is he still around? Is he still, are people still keen on him? And they say, yes. And you don't realise this because in Europe, you've turned away and you've moved on, but we haven't. What do you think will be the outcome, if, particularly if the Democrats do very badly in the elections later this year? Is there really a chance that Trump could make a comeback? I think there is. And obviously, one of the stories this week is going to be the one year anniversary of whatever one calls it at the Capitol last year, Capitol riot or attempted coup or any of those other other things that shambolic. I mean, for me, the image of 2021 was the shaman, uh, the QAnon shaman with a buffalo headgear yowling at the moon uh, in, in the center of American democracy. And these people have not gone away. And there are real uh, fears about the future, including essentially vote rigging, actually, in different in different states, a great deal of disunity in the United States. And Trump, just because he's not on Twitter, doesn't mean to say he's not gone away. Or put it another way, uh, Trumpism has not gone away. And again, it's not a philosophy, it's a kind of style, it's a disruptive style, rather <laughs> Rather, I think in some ways we underestimate the way in which Putin and, and the lies have infected Western democracies and the way in which Trump simply says things that we know are absolutely not true. And it, the relief has been that we haven't had to listen to it because he's not got the pulpit of the White House and he's not got the pulpit of Twitter. I think the big story about 2022 will be the extent to which Trump is still there, the support for Trump or Trumpism is still there. And the kind of people who stormed the Capitol and their many, many supporters a year ago will still be still be voting. 
also there's great disaffection in the Democratic Party about the leadership of Joe Biden. And of course, that that is significant, because if Biden is weak within his own party, he's hardly going to be strong in the country. And then finally, midterm elections, sitting presidents usually do badly anyway. So we can't discount that fact. And one of the reasons that they usually do badly is that their own supporters, in this case, Democrats, sometimes stay home. So you can expect everybody that I talk to in America expects that uh, Congress will essentially return to Republican control. And that means, because they have been obstructionists for years, it won't be very easy for Biden to get anything done for the rest of his term. And of course, there is possibility, um, probability, according to some, that Biden may not be the candidate, Democrat candidate for the next term. So he will look increasingly like a lame duck if he hasn't got that authority. Yes, and there's already jockeying for position within the Democratic Party. It's difficult to see who his obvious um, successor might be. Kamala Harris's uh, vice president, you might think, would be that person, but she has not been a great star within the Democratic firmament either. There are people on the left of the party who are very disaffected and who may run, and they may not actually be the nominee, the Democratic nominee, but they will stir things up and make life also very difficult for Joe Biden. Meanwhile, China is trying desperately to clamp down on COVID infections. It's got a lockdown now on the basis of three asymptomatic cases for over a million people. And the Olympics are playing into that and the need to show that they still have control over the virus, even though Omicron is so much more transmissible, it makes it far more difficult to contain it. What are the prospects for Hong Kong, do you think, this year and Taiwan? Well, I think most people uh, thinking about Taiwan suggest that the, the, the rumblings will continue, but nothing dramatic will be done. The key thing, I think, uh, from when I talk to Chinese experts, who are much more expert in this than, than, than I am, they, they, they tend to say, look, China, the Chinese administration thinks in terms of generations, whereas you in the West tend to think in terms of a two or three or four year electoral cycle. So they're unlikely to do anything hugely dramatic. Unlike Putin, they're not going to be marshalling troops, most people seem to think. But the rumblings against Taiwan will continue and the crackdown on on democratic dissent in Hong Kong will continue and the rest of the world will be told to mind its own business. So it will just slowly continue as Xi Jinping continues also to assert his authority. So I'm trying to get my addiction to Twitter under control this year. I have put a 45-minute limit on how long I can spend looking at it on my mobile, which I've instigated and so far is is working really well. It's actually quite nice when it says you can no longer look at Twitter. What are your New Year's resolutions, Gavin? Well, like probably most of the country, I have ambitions for a dry January, but I will settle for a damp January. (laughs) 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 Abandon alcohol. Probably. My other ambition, certainly on Twitter and everything else, is to is to learn to type. You know, I can write. I can actually write very quickly on a on a keyboard. Unfortunately, I don't write very accurately. And between that and spell check, sometimes both tweets and the words I do in the journalism sometimes aren't the word that I intended. So I'm going to try and actually do a kind of internal spell check to get things right. <laughs> Gavin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Ross. Thank you. If you enjoyed Start Your Year, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year 2022. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. 
The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.